This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. on a Friday. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Let's assemble the first news panel of the year. I love it with a little bit of funk and a little bit of doo-dapping and dancing and shoulder shaking this morning. You can't have a panel without panelists. So let's say hello and good morning to Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hello, Joita. Hi, Dave. Good morning. And hello to Michelle Hello, Dave, and hello, everybody. All right, let's get right into it. Three stories on deck today, beginning in Ontario. This is an Ontario story, but it has big-time national implications. Some Ontario hospital workers are deeply dissatisfied with their jobs and working conditions. A survey of 750 workers showed that 41% dread coming to work. A similar number are thinking about leaving the profession entirely. Registered practical nurse Dave Virch describes the experience of some employees. Um, I've heard cases where uh, a nurse or a RPN or a healthcare worker will pull into a parking lot and they'll count the number of cars and they know that there's not enough people that are going to be there to fill that shift. So they know already before they even get into the building that they're going to be working short. And it, it, it's like climbing a mountain every day. Uh, uh, you reach a breaking point, and I think that's what's happening to a lot of our healthcare workers right now. The Ontario Council of Hospital Unions is calling on the government to bring in minimum staff-to-patient ratios and a multi-billion dollar funding injection. Secretary-Treasurer Sharon Richer says staffing issues are already impacting patient care. Um, they're very upset. They know that th- that they're stretched so thin that, you know, patient care is being, you know, put to the wayside. And this is very upsetting to them. The provincial government has introduced policies to bring in more workers. Other provincial health care systems are dealing with capacity and burnout issues, too. Quebec's emergency departments have mostly been operating at over 100 percent capacity since November. So here's where I want to start the conversation. I want to start the conversation with the raw number, Joita. 41% seems like a really big number. I'm Mm -hmm. forcing you into a little bit of speculation here, though. How much do you think that really differs from workers in any other sector or profession? Well, I mean, if you look at another survey, I I took a peek at it yesterday. It says that um, this was a global survey. It says that worldwide... In the world's full-time worker population, about eighty-five percent dislike their jobs oh my and gosh. feel disengaged from their from their jobs. So, I mean, compared to that, forty-one percent seems not so bad. With that said, it's a bit like comparing apples and oranges. The two surveys are yes. far from identical. I do recognize that, um, but I think there is an element of you know people can I think shrug it off to an extent and say, well. You, you see, nobody really likes their jobs. Uh, with that said, with that said, I think there are some peculiarities here. Forty-one percent, uh, and some of the anecdotal d- data that we're hearing, some of, like you know, we heard in the clip, uh, people driving into the parking lot, realizing based on the number of cars that there just aren't enough people, and feeling this overwhelming um, fatigue even as before they walk in the door, to, you know, to start their shift. And then you have other stories of people crying on lunch breaks, crying mm. before, during, and after their shifts. You're really taking a toll on the mental health 
of frontline staff. And the other piece around this that I don't think is getting enough attention uh, is that a lot of the the nursing staff in particular uh, comprises women and people of color. And so when you think about the impact of racism and sexism coupled with the realities of working in a sector that is, and I think we've talked about this in some detail, uh, acutely uh, and chronically short-staffed, and if you've had the impact of the pandemic. So I think the 41% number is significant because of what it's telling us about people's lived reality and what it's telling us about the impact on patient care and the fact that uh, not only are they struggling to keep uh, people engaged with their jobs, but recruitment is also proving to be a bit of a challenge because there's yeah. no one stepping in to fill the breach. So the 41% number is significant uh, given the context. Yeah, Michelle, I I'm definitely willing to argue with my own premise here, even though I think it probably is more broadly reflected across mm -hmm. job sectors, job dissatisfaction. The important thing here is that healthcare is a very, very, very critical job. And this is one where you do not want nearly half the workforce being unhappy with their job conditions. Conditions. Completely agree. And I would also argue a couple of things. A is that there's a significant distinction between disliking your job and dreading your job. Dread is really strong. The anecdotes we're hearing absolutely support that this is taking a huge toll on, on all of these healthcare workers. The other thing, too, is that they're working in an absolutely vital field with maximum pressure. Um, you, you know, if, if you're filing things or doing a, a a job that doesn't actually have life or death circumstances. I'm sure like, being a bro like, like being a broadcaster. <laughs> exactly. Or, or an editor. Yeah. 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 All these things. Like that would significantly diminish the, the amount of real pressure these guys are facing. So I feel like it is a bit disingenuous to com compare most of our jobs to the life and death stakes that, that healthcare workers are facing. And 41% of dread is is really striking to me. Um, I do quibble a little bit with the sample size of that survey. Yeah, 750 small. is small. not a yeah. lot, um, but I, I, I don't doubt its findings. And I suspect that would be borne out if it was sampled more widely. Um, and where I where I see the most value in it is in a sign of future attrition and, and focus for recruitment. If you know that 41% of your workforce or can can imply that 41% of your workforce hate their job and dread coming into work, you just know the majority of those people are probably looking to either leave jobs or leave mm. the industry altogether. So that's a sign of what Joita alluded to earlier, that recruitment efforts really need to be front and center right now. Yeah, Joita, that, that leads into this next thought, which there's a bit of a chicken and eggness to what I'm about to say, because a lot of provinces are rolling out policies to try and beef up their staffing, attracting foreign workers, mm -hmm. creating streamlined certification processes, moving to team-based health models. This is a very Captain Obvious question, Joita, but does any of that really matter if the working conditions stink? But knowing that I'm chicken and egg in this, bringing in more people should improve the working conditions. Yeah, I, I think it's hard to say whether which comes, you know, which one you put before the others. I think that all of these things work together, whether it's, uh, you know, bringing in more staff, whether it's improving conditions. I even thought about maybe the value of uh, of having nurses in particular work shorter shifts. I mean, they work 12 hours yeah, uh, yeah. A, a day, which yeah. is a long shift. Uh, and I wonder if there would be some value in even thinking about the conventional eight hour shift and having three shifts of nurses in a day. No, I'm not sure what, why that isn't done more widely. Maybe it's a patient care question. Maybe it just creates a lot of, maybe it creates a large administrative burden. Like I don't have the inside track on that one. I couldn't say. Uh, I think it's it's worth remembering that uh, if you look at the example in BC where they have 
uh, brought in some legislation around minimum patient and staff ratios. It's still early days, so we don't know how successful they'll mm-hmm. be. But mm-hmm. I think it is very important to start targeting the recruitment side of the equation, whether it's subsidizing nursing programs or other um, you know, other forms of education to try and incentivize <clears throat> people working in these professions, uh, whether it is looking at compensation, although Ontario nurses are amongst some of the better paid in the country, but it's not just about compensation. Maybe it's also about uh, acknowledging the human cost of working in these high stress environments and the vital role of the job and expanding access to psychosocial supports, regular support with a counselor or a therapist, somebody who they can actually someone who can actually step in and 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 look at the mental health of of, of course of course there's also there's also a big shortage in that field uh, too right well that's that. it that's yes. what i was yeah. sorry go ahead so i mean there, there there are these there are um ideas that can be floated but it's a tricky one to sort out because there's no silver bullet there's no one thing that you can actually point to and say well do this and that'll fix your problems i think uh, injecting funding into uh the healthcare se- se- uh, sector is a long overdue and now that there's finally some announcements around funding it's not going to be a couple of years before we see any impact from that there are um, inroads being made to allow for the um for foreign credentials to be recognized more quickly but again it'll be some time before we can see any impact from that so the part of what's making this so difficult for healthcare workers is because in the in the near future it doesn't look like things are getting any better and that can be very disheartening as well yeah, Michelle, I, I, I'm going to circle back to this idea of retention because you alluded to it as well. If the working conditions aren't there, yes, it's wonderful from a raw number perspective to try and bring more people in. But if you're churning nearly half your workforce out on a regular basis, it really doesn't matter how many people you're bringing in. Absolutely. And there's so many other factors here, too. Not all people or are, are all bodies are created equal in that sense. If you're replacing seasoned people who are accustomed to a, a hospital's ways and then bringing in a flood of new people that don't have that same degree of knowledge of the system or whatnot, that's going to take time, like Joita said, to get everyone up and running. So it's not like you're going to instantly have people who are ready to ready to roll at previous capacity levels right out of the gate. Um, so that that's a concern, uh, contributing to the, the natural time aspect of just having these programs established and rolled out in the first place. But the other thing to do with conditions, I find, is it would be, I would, I suspect it would be incredibly disheartening to be one piece of a system that's encountering strain everywhere. So even if you do manage to improve working conditions in terms of numbers or shift lengths, I like that thought from Joita, um, any of those things, if you address those, but you're still seeing your patients fall through the cracks elsewhere in the system, that I suspect will be deeply demoralizing and not do a lot to help. So nurses are just one piece of this broader puzzle. And I think we're seeing these sorts of concerns playing out all across the healthcare yeah. systems and not just, not just confined to nurses. So I, I think that would have to be addressed as well in order to make you a lot of nurses enter the profession because they want to feel like they're making a difference. And if their patients are not experiencing that difference, I suspect that would erode your sense of purpose. Michelle, you and I were in the time machine yesterday reflecting on how fast time passes. Would you guys believe that we're approaching the four-year anniversary of the pandemic starting, of the official global pandemic starting? And I don't Wild. mean and I don't mean to harp 
on these things. I don't mean to make every conversation a pandemic conversation, but I think you cannot separate what's going on in the healthcare industry today from what happened during the course of the last four years, particularly some of the massive spikes during the pandemic. And Michelle, I really yeah. feel like what's going on here is a ripple effect from the pandemic, especially when a lot of healthcare workers were begging provincial governments to do more in terms of uh, health and safety, public health perspectives. I'd even take it a step further, to be honest with you, and argue that this is a this predates the pandemic. A lot mm -hmm. of these warnings that we've been hearing were coming out long before the pandemic was on the radar. The pandemic massively exacerbated all of those existing tensions, and that's what I think is coming to a boil. In a way, I think the pandemic, the pandemic, excuse me, uh, both exacerbated and accelerated the current predicament that we're in, um, just because the, the strain was so significant, and I don't think the system has fully recovered. So I, I wouldn't actually pin this on the pandemic. I, I think the, this is the symptom of things that started to manifest long before that. Yeah, Juita, I think that's a fair observation from Michelle, that perhaps the pandemic made it a more acute ripple effect, but the waves had already started well before March of 2020. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, for sure. I mean, our healthcare system was in crisis long before the pandemic. Um, we, we were hearing stories about long wait times and people, you know, waiting in corridors, waiting to see a doctor in emergency rooms and all oh, kinds yeah. of other problems and shortages of doctors and nurses. This is all pre-March 2020. And the pandemic mm. hits like a bolt out of the blue. And suddenly it's just gotten that much worse uh, but i think the other piece around this that's interesting is also uh one of the things the pandemic did is really sort of changed broad-based thinking about work mm -hmm. uh yes. kind of thought yes. that you know yes. uh, before the pandemic we all had to put our nose to the grindstone and and you know like it or not you have to you have to suffer at your jobs and you know now with work from home options and people having far more in-depth conversations about work-life balance I think maybe it's taken the attraction away from nursing. People are saying, well, are there ways that I can help people that doesn't necessitate going into a hospital? I mean, there are people who, you know, you, you, let's face facts. You have some telehealth options and you have some virtual health, but primarily nursing is still done in person in hospitals and clinics and other places. And people are saying, is this really the career mm, path I want mm -hmm, to follow? Mm -hmm. I could be yeah. doing something else. I mean, you could even be a radio broadcaster and work from home, frankly, nowadays with the way things are. <laughs> well, not all of us. <laughs> so, so, so I think that's just, it's not being talked about as much, but I think part of the dissatisfaction with the job, I, I would say 90% of it is just the realities on the ground. But I think 10% yeah. of it is also how people's, perceptions of what work should actually be like having undergone a seismic change because of the pandemic. Yeah. Michelle, uh, we need to put a bow on this because we're, as always, running over time. That, that's just how, that's just how this, uh, this panel seems to go yeah. because we like chatting. Yeah. But when we're talking about important things, I think it's always worth hunkering down and taking that extra minute. This, to me, actually strikes me as a bit of a follow-up of a conversation that you and I had about a significant mental health crisis going on in the veterinary industry. Uh, we talked about that on the show, you and I, yes. together a couple of months right. ago. And, I, and one of the things that I said to you in that conversation is I think people who got put on the front line during the pandemic are still really feeling it, right? A lot of people were able to retreat and go home, but people like nurses and doctors and retail employees yes, and a bunch of yeah. other pe veterinarians, people who were put in those, quote, uh, uh, essential, what, what, service essential services. Thank you, Michelle. See, yeah. I'm already forgetting my pandemic term. 
terminology, but I do think oh, that it's burned I, into my brain for life. <laughs> that, that when I do think when I do talk about a ripple effect, I think that goes back to my idea of sort of broad-based dissatisfaction across work, and I wonder how many essential workers or frontline workers, teachers as well. I wonder how many are still feeling mm. what it was in 2020, 2021, and 2022. I think you're onto something for sure. And I think is right too, to talk about the, the way work is viewed. These people didn't get to have the benefit of those same conversations that a lot of us were able to have in 2020 when we pivoted to remote work. Um, so yeah, I think this is, this is bearing out that way for sure. The, yeah, you know what? I'll leave it there. Yeah, I agree. I, I think I think that's just a good spot to leave it. But but this is a yep. really important conversation, and I, I know I say this a lot at the end of these segments. Healthcare is something that the three of us are probably going to tackle a bunch this year because uh, there there are a lot of stories going on in different provinces that are going to be worth some analysis here. So thank you both for starting the conversation on healthcare that will continue throughout the year. But coming up next. Switching to the charitable sector, there's some new data that finds executives in the charitable field, specifically climate-related charities, are earning over $200,000 per year. And it begs the question, how do you feel about CEOs of charities making six-figure salaries? This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.